Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Is this on? Nice. All right. So on behalf of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Pratt Contemporaries, a group of young professionals that supports Baltimore's library system, I'd like to welcome you to this very special event. My name is Lionel Foster. I'm a contributing writer for Urbanite and Baltimore City Paper and a Pratt Contemporaries board member. Uh, before we begin, um, a little pitch. The Pratt Contemporaries is supporting the Library Summer Reading Program, where we match kids with books of their very own and some amazing events that support reading. Um, and we're donating to that cause this summer and would love for you to do the same. So you may see flyers with QR code uh, that can, can lead you to a site where you can, can donate. So in the introduction to my interview with Baratunde and the current issue of City Paper, it's free so you can pick it up. I refer to him as, quote, a thoroughly modern triple threat, a comedian, political activist, and technophile so skilled in the use of digital media that he sometimes lists his home address as Twitter. That, this is a dynamic and unique combination. Baratunde is, by his own admission, a web-surfing, tofu-loving geek. He's also very, very funny. But he seems to have, have arrived at his own set of adjectives by doing something we all as individuals do from time to time, step back and try to figure out who we are in the best, most honest way to move forward. Raised not far from here in Washington, D.C., dangerously close to the drug violence people in many cities saw firsthand in the 80s and 90s. Baltimore was no stranger to that. Uh, Baratunde attended Sidwell Friends School, then Harvard University, before executing his diabolical plot to take over the world. <laughs> He's appeared in Vanity Fair and on CNN, MSNBC, and the BBC, as well as many other stations with B's and C's in their titles. For five years, he served as di director of digital for the satirical newspaper, The Onion. Now he is teaching America how to be black. Part poignant autobiography, part satirical how-to guide, How to Be Black examines the complexities of race in the age of Obama. While dispensing advice on how to be the black friend, how to speak for all black people, and the best way to celebrate Black History Month, in case you were wondering, Thurston illustrates the need for identities that are less either or and more all of the above. It's a book that was long overdue. These are very complicated times that we live in. Four years ago, America put one black man in a White House, and some people are still seeing red. So perhaps we need comedians like Baratunde more than ever, gifted observers who can survey the terrain, report back, and help us all laugh together about whatever it is that lies ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, Baratunde Thurston. That was an amazing introduction. Thank you. A round of applause for Lionel, y'all. Also, it's his birthday, so extra hooping and hollering for his life. I do take issue with you describing my world takeover plans as diabolical. That is very judgmental of you, my brother. Love. Um, make some, I should have adjusted this sooner. I think we'll be good. Stay still. Stay still. Stop being racist. Okay. Uh, what's up, y'all? How you doing, man? Which? No, not you. Him specifically. Just, I just want to know this one guy how he's doing. We'll, we'll get to you later, okay? A little patience. Uh, what's your name? Terry. Terry? Everybody say, what's up, Terry? What's up, Terry? <laughs> nice. You guys know Terry? You act like you know him already. You're asking how he's doing and everything. That's cool. That's cool. No, thank you so much for 
coming out. Uh, I have not, I grew up down the block 45 minutes uh, on the highway. And not, I didn't grow up on the highway. I grew up in the, the other town, but I didn't really spend much time in Baltimore. And I came here a few weeks ago as a part of a conference on inclusive innovation that was held uh, at the art school. And it was cool. I got a little flavor. I was only here 24 hours. This is also a really short trip. I've had some good friends from this city, and I feel a bit of a sort of kinship, even though I don't know it so well. But I appreciate all y'all coming out. Uh, here's how the evening is going to run. I'm going to talk. It's going to be great. Uh, you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be like the, probably the best thing uh, ever. And then we're going to do Q&A. <laughs> we can have questions for you. We'll have a moderator. Make sure you're not making speeches. And, uh, and then we'll do sales and signing. It's sort of like a three-act play. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. I want to share a story with you uh, of, of the book, but it happened after I had already written much of it. And so I'll, I'll weave a few stories. I'll read a few pieces of chapters, and then we'll really get to the Q&A part, which for me is the most interesting. Out of curiosity, raise your hand if you have read the book. So we've got a lot of haters there. Okay. okay. It's a library. You can just check it out. <laughs> you didn't do the assigned reading. It's going to be awkward for y'all. We'll do a quiz at the end. I was, uh, I'm a really social person. Right? I love meeting people. I love going out in the world. I am like a reverse introvert. It's just hard to turn off that energy. But every once in a while, I don't want anything to do with human beings. They get on my nerves, and I need some solitude. And late last year, I went to a bar. And I went there not to engage in civil society or camaraderie or learn about my fellow human beings. I went there to cultivate my relationship with whiskey and to just get a little deeper into that. You know, it takes some focus sometimes, and you don't want to be distracted by words coming out of other people's faces. Unfortunately for me, this woman sat next to me, a very chatty white lady sat next to me. She was a terrible overlap of uh, two attributes. She was curious about everything. She was excited about everything. And that overlap is deadly to somebody trying to be antisocial. So she launches into this series of interrogations, starting with, so what do you do? I hate, I hate that as an opening question. Like, what do I, I hate people who ask that question? What was the appropriate answer to that to make people stop doing it? And what I really wanted to say to her, quite honestly, is like, look, I'm over 30 years old. My friend circle is locked. This isn't going to develop into anything. <laughs> Why don't we both save time and just cut our losses, focus on the whiskey? It's a uniting force in the world, you know? Uh, but I didn't do that because I had better home training than that. And so instead, I decided to treat her the way you might treat a parent you're on the phone with, and they've gone 20 minutes over your budgeted time to be talking to them. So you get to this monosyllabic, sort of disengaged grunting, where you're just like, I'm alive, <sighs> checking Facebook, I'm doing my taxes, you know, whatever it is you're doing in the background. And so with her, she's like, oh, so what do you do? I was like, I'm going to give her the bare minimum. Let's just end this relationship. Comedian. I, did, I literally said one word, comedian. I do comedian. That's a ridiculous answer. It's just rude. <laughs> it's not an action. Uh, she's like, she got so excited. She's like, oh my God, I love comedy. You get to make people laugh. That must be so much fun. Do you have a day job? A lot of comics have day jobs. you like a waiter or a server or a waiter or a server. <laughs> Those are my choices. All right, cool. Um, yeah, I have a day job. I work at The Onion. 
He's like, I love the onion. That's so fantastic. That's hysterical. You guys must make each other laugh all the time. Is it crazy there? You just love, you just like crazy all the time. Do you love it? Is it crazy? I get my health care there. She's like, oh, okay, okay, cool. So, so where do you live? What, what part of town do you live in? Brooklyn. Ooh, Brooklyn, we go hard. I love Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn's amazing. Brooklyn's coming up. I love Brooklyn. My friends, some of my friends live in Brooklyn. Do you love it? Is it amazing? Do you love it? I sleep there. <laughs> I'm just like, stop talking at me. She's like, well, where'd you live before Brooklyn or before New York? Where'd you live before then? Boston. Ooh, Boston. It's a cute town. A lot of colleges in Boston. Did you go to college in Boston? You went to college in Boston, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> well, where'd you go to college? Come on, tell me where you went. Harvard. Holy shit, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You mean to tell me you work for The Onion, you went to Harvard, you're like the whitest black guy I've ever met. People, she said this to me, to my face, within striking distance, which is a bold and foolish move on her part, I think. And, uh, and I really wanted, in that moment, to like strangle her slowly to death and explain that I will also be the last black guy she'd ever meet. She'd keep behaving like that. Um, but instead, I, you know, I, I promoted the book and decided to be constructive and choose freedom instead. But that exchange is, uh, epitomizes a certain chunk of what this book uh, talks about. This idea that like, oh wait, I have a job and have a college degree, ergo I'm white. Like those attributes of success or achievement or intellectual pursuits are race-centric, uh, that's stupid. Uh, and so she needed to, to be told that. Uh, so I was glad to offer that community service bit. <laughs> the book is, uh, is a memoir. It is mostly the story of my coming of blackness. It is the story of a kid who grew up in D.C. during the crack wars in the 80s, raised stereotypically by uh, a saintly and hardworking black mother. Uh, it's the story of a kid who has a Nigerian name but isn't Nigerian because his parents were black activists who couldn't afford to get back to Africa, so they brought Africa to the house uh, in the form of my label to the world. It's the story of a kid who you know, went to Sidwell Friends School, 7th through 12th grade, went to Harvard University, and has access to some of the best education and networks that this country has to offer. And it's the story of all that existing in one being uh, and being absolutely comfortably black through the process. I also have these historic, these um, historical, that's grandiose. Uh, <laughs> it's a historical book, y'all. It is a tome, it is a mark of our times. Nah, I have these uh, satirical chapters, that's where the how-to comes from. I learned how to be the black friend during my time in this private school. I learned how to be the black employee during my time in corporate America. I learned how to be the angry Negro by living in America. And sharing those lessons along the way to provide some insight, I colored the whole book with a series of interviews with a group I describe as the black panel. They are experts in blackness. They are black people. And I challenged them to answer certain questions like when did you first realize you were black? How black are you? Uh, can you swim? Did you ever wish you weren't black? So really intense intellectual um, queries levied at my expert panel. And so the result is, uh, is this. And what I think I will do as far as samples go 
is start with one of the foundational questions. When did you first realize you were black? For Americans, some days are unforgettable. The day JFK was assassinated, the day Osama bin Laden was killed, the day Flavor Flav's fried chicken restaurant went out of business. For many black Americans, a similarly unforgettable experience takes place the day you realize you're black. And if it's not a moment of black self-awareness, it's probably nevertheless the moment you were first introduced to the idea of black as something negative. I recall three moments of black self-awareness. The first moment occurred in kindergarten. My mother worked in Washington, D.C.'s LaFont Plaza at the office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Across the street, the Department of Housing and Urban Development ran a kindergarten in its child care center. The HUD building has a distinctive design, a curved concrete structure in the shape of an elongated X with evenly spaced recessed windows arrayed in a precise grid. When seen in conjunction with the stormtrooper outpost looking parking attendant booth, it felt as if we were on the set of Star Wars. Tucked away at an interior corner of a courtyard was the child care center's playground. That's where I developed a crush on a little girl in my class, insofar as a four or five year old even knows what that means. I would demonstrate my affections by throwing things at her and singing Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder's Ebony and Ivory in her general direction. She was white. I don't remember anyone making a big deal of our racial differences, but I remember noticing them myself. Also, I sang Ebony and Ivory at her, which I still can't believe. The next year, she and I had moved on to different worlds, and I became obsessed with the song Uptown Girl by Billy Joel. Not until writing this book did I realize how perfect for the situation the lyrics of that song are. Essentially, she was living in her white bread world, and I was her downtown man. It was obvious, people. The second moment of black self-awareness came courtesy of my mother and her sense of interior design. Our household was stocked with images of proud blackness, a Malcolm X portrait, stacks of jazz, soul, funk, and R&B records, and two massive paintings, one integrating a set of onks, the other of a black power fist. It's hard not to know you're black when you're physically surrounded by it on a daily basis. Footnote. The Ankh is an Egyptian hieroglyph symbolizing the key of life or eternal life. It appears often in Egyptian art, Egyptian tombs, and season five of Lost. The third moment of awareness occurred on a childhood camping trip with my mother and my friend Reginald somewhere in Virginia, I think. Reggie and I were playing alone in the lake when a little white boy approached us from the shore and loudly announced, there's niggers in the water. Look at the niggers. I like to imagine that our first reaction was to spin around, searching frantically, yelling, where, niggers, where? Let me at them. <laughs> Reggie and I had a hard choice to make in that moment. The reason we knew each other is that we were in karate classes together back in D.C., and we were very good at karate. We conferred on whether or not to use our combined karate skills to kick this little racist ass, but considering our location in the who knows where woods of probably Virginia, we decided against it. In that moment, 
The black pride I absorbed in my home was balanced by the embarrassment, rage, paranoia, and self-restraint that often accompany blackness in the outside world of America. And then I proceed to interrogate the panel about their first realizations of their blackness. And they responded with meaningful, sad, and like really interestingly insightful ones. Uh, one of the dudes I interviewed, his name is Derek Ashong. The panel, let me describe the panel for you because it's such an essential part of the book, not in word count, but in, in substance. I, I assembled a group of seven. Seven's a great number. Uh, three black dudes, three black ladies, one white man for scientific control group purposes. <laughs> it also defends against charges of reverse racism. I don't have time for that. Just talk to the white guy. He's Canadian too, so it covers all kinds of bases. Uh, actually, it's Christian Lander who did the website and book Stuff White People Like. So he is truly an expert in whiteness and thus has a lot to say about blackness. Uh, but on the male side, I had uh, W. Kamau Bell. He's a stand-up comic and uh, playwright. And he has a TV show coming out this summer on FX that Chris Rock is producing. It's called Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. He is amazing. He's from Chicago. He represented the West Coast for me, though, because he's been in the Bay Area for so many years doing a stand-up. And he does a one-man show called the W. Kamau Bell Curve, ending racism in about an hour. And every, uh, for groups that come, if you bring a friend of a different race with you to his show, you get half off the ticket price. So he's really putting his money where his values are. I, I, I appreciated that. There was Derek Ashong, who I knew from college. Derek was my diaspora representative. Derek was born in Ghana, raised in Qatar, a little bit of Saudi Arabia, a little bit of Philly, a little bit of suburban New Jersey, you know, typical. And he uh, is the leader of a band called Soulfege, this global Afro-fusion reggae hip-hop funk thing. He was the host of Al Jazeera's The Stream on Al Jazeera English. He had a show on Oprah Radio. And he is global Negro brother. Uh, and there was Elon James White, who's a comic from Brooklyn. Elon grew up in Brooklyn, raised mostly by his mom. Elon suffered from the urban violence situation. He actually got shot in the eye. Uh, Elon is hilarious. He has a web show called This Week in Blackness, which has won many awards. He has a radio show called Blacking It Up. Uh, he is all in on the whole black thing. And, uh, and he represented a little bit of the East Coast. For the ladies, we had Jaquetta Zatmari from the Eastern Shore and a libertarian. She was my rural representative, small town America. Jaquetta does a one-woman show called That's Funny. You don't sound black on the phone. <laughs> there was Cheryl Conti who was my co-founder at Jack and Jill Politics. Cheryl actually came up in the DC area. We went to the same high school, though time enough apart that we didn't have any overlap. Cheryl now lives in the Bay, does a social media consulting business. And there was Damali Ayo, who in 2003 put out a beautiful performance art website called rentanegro.com, uh, whose premise was, look, there's a lot of white people out there with black friends asking a lot of questions, want to be educated on the race, we should monetize this situation and lease our knowledge out to these compatriots of ours to get paid. She wrote a book of that same title. She wrote another book called Obama Stand, Land Without Racism. Uh, she's great. And then, and then the Christian. So when I asked Derek, when did you first realize you were black? He was like, yeah, I'm from Africa. <laughs> Everybody was black. We didn't really think about it like that. You know, it was like, what's your tribe? What's your language? What's your religion? What language do your people speak? And he said, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, there's a video clip of this uh, on the book's website, but he said he first realized he was black when he went to the Middle East. And he said he'd be walking down the street, 
and hear people whisper, oh, Salif, oh, and I was like, oh, what does that translate to? He's like, oh, this is a black guy. Uh, so that was his introduction, was leaving his own homeland. And it's certainly in the US, he was reminded uh, extra urgently of his own blackness uh, and the expectations of those. Let me skip to another section. Uh-huh. Okay, this is, I've actually never read this before. I've done enough of these events now that I'm getting tired of reading the things I've already read, so I wanna, you guys are gonna get an exclusive Baltimore look. This is the chapter called How to Be the Next Black President. And it is, uh, it's essentially, you know, a guide for uh, maybe a second Obama term, but more likely another black person not named Obama who thinks they should be president using this president's uh, big chunk of his first term as a template as well as a campaign lessons learned along the way. The theory being that when America elected President Obama to be president, that was a, obviously an extraordinary, historic, that was historic, not, not the book, that was a historic moment. But it might have been a fluke. It might have been one of those things like, yeah, we tried that once. That was crazy. And we had that black president, never again. So if it happens again, that's when you know they mean it. Right, because the first time, why not? Let's just let's let's drink and vote for the black dude. Like, but the second time is like we did this before. Like, we're it's a conscious choice. So the second black president is actually the first black president. That's that's my premise. And then I offer all sorts of of advice to this hypothetical candidate. And uh, let me just I'll jump. I won't read a whole lot, but let's talk about the black problem. I'm not gonna dance delicately around this. Do not mention black people. If you truly and unavoidably feel you must, speak of them as a parent to a child requiring discipline. The freedom with which you're allowed to mention black people depends heavily on what you're saying. If you are criticizing black behavior or calling on black people to do more for themselves, you can spend all day and all night talking about black people. America loves to hear leaders demanding that folks do more to better themselves. Just be sure to avoid implying that any collective effort is required to help one group of people improve their situation. Americans believe strongly in the myth of rugged individualism and self-made superstars. Don't undermine this belief by bringing up group grievances. Of course, if you're a conservative candidate, your entire platform consists of this message. You can't get by with telling folks God helps those who helps themselves alone. You've got to speak to various interest groups and convince them that you understand their problems and have their back. With most groups, this will not pose any problems. You should feel free to highlight the challenges you see and solutions you have in mind for women, Latinos, Jews, Asians, farmers, students, small business owners, Christians, artists, technologists, cobblers, medical professionals, chimney sweeps, and Nate Walsh of Dayton, Ohio. However, you cannot come right out and make promises to black voters in public. It's what white people expect and fear. So you have to be extremely careful in how you refer to your own people. Anytime you're talking about issues that especially affect black Americans, try to couch it in a more universal light. For example, use the term middle class. Very few people can criticize you for promising to help the middle class 
because in America, everyone sees him or herself as middle class. Millionaires think they're middle class. The three years unemployed real estate broker thinks of herself as middle class as well. Middle class is the great normalizing phrase of our time. On the other hand, if you say black Americans, white people will know exactly whom you mean and your cover will be blown. Under special circumstances, you can refer to urban communities. But for God's sakes, be careful. It's a cloaking device with very limited power. In the late 1990s, radio stations started changing their descriptions from black to urban programming, but nothing else changed, just the label. Urban has a softer sound than black. Urban makes people feel like they're on a mildly risky but ultimately safe municipal safari. Black makes them lock their car doors. The more the term urban is used, though, the more people figure out what you're really saying. Uh, so there's a, a little teaser and window into, uh, into that slice. I'll tell you another sort of behind-the-scenes story of the book. <coughs> Excuse me. And that is uh, where, in many ways, the book actually came from. I mean, it sort of came from my life, but there was a moment where it's like, oh, this could become a thing. And for me, that moment occurred three years ago in the Park Slope neighborhood of Brooklyn. I was going to buy some wine. And there's a certain way you're supposed to buy wine. I do not respect that method. I do not understand it. And things I don't understand, I don't respect. So here's how it's supposed to work. You, especially with red wine, you pour it in a glass, you swirl it around, you let it breathe, because it's a living thing, apparently. And then you snort the foam, the fumes into your nose, and a chemical and emotional reaction occurs inside your heart area. And you, you get these feelings of like ennui, and nutmeg, and oak, and all kinds of and lime juice, maybe. I don't It's all bullshit. Uh, people want to feel special about something they just made up. So I don't understand all that. There was, a, there was a clerk at the shop. She had an apron on. It said, like, wine steward, I'm here to help you. I don't want her help. I'm grown. I'm locked. I'm done. What I don't know, it's not important. And so instead, I look for a sign with the labels. Maybe there's a way to figure out what wine to buy based on what it's called. And I came across this wine called Negro Amaro. And I was like, yes. This is for me. This is Negro wine. It's got my people's name right in it. Could I get a stronger sign from Black Jesus? I don't think so. <laughs> so I bought it, and I consumed it, and I saw it was good and said it was good, and it was good. And a few days later, I had a thought uh, about it. And as with most of my thoughts, I posted them to the internet using Twitter. And I shouted out to Elon James White. It's like, yo, Elon, I bought some wine called Negro Amaro because it had the word Negro in it. How black are you? That was the hashtag. Challenge. And he responded within minutes uh, that he saw the subtle racial implications of Thundercats. And that Panthro was uh, shirtless, black, and Lionel's driver. <laughs> How black are you? Boom! And it was off. Digital dozens. Let's go. So we carried on like this for 12 hours. Hundreds of other people jumped in on the hashtag conversation. And I ended up speaking about this moment later that year at a conference, and there was a woman from HarperCollins in the audience. I was talking all about Twitter hashtags, and this was one segment that was a part of that talk. And she brought me in for a meeting with her group. I said, we really think you have a book in you. You have a great voice, great perspective. You should write a book. I was like, maybe. You know, just because people flatter you and tell you should do something, that doesn't mean it might be a terrible idea. What, what do you get out of this? What's going on here? What do you really want? 
And uh, they said, what about a book called uh, How Black Are You? I was like, what about no? <laughs> that is a horrible notion. Because for me, it was, a, it was a clear distinction. Like, I initiated this mostly silly battle with a friend and a fellow comedian. We had the same context and understanding. We knew the rules of the road. We had trust and understood each other's intentions. I don't trust America with that question. <laughs> this is the same country that still can't believe that the president is a citizen uh, and a Christian. And that's just weird at this point. It's just like it's actually, a, it's beyond anger-inducing. It's kind of like it's a mental problem. And so if, like, if the country can't handle those basic facts, uh, how are we going to throw out how a black are you? I just saw watermelons and grape soda filling my Twitter feed. It's like, I can't live like this. So instead, uh, they had proposed, what about how to be black? And I paused. I was like, yo, that's ridiculous. That is absurd and unachievable. Yes, <laughs> yes, obviously yes. Because if it's unachievable, then there is an absurd opportunity in it. It's a great device to use for comedy and satire. So let's embrace the, the undefinable and, uh, and go from there. So the book started as the satire bits, became more autobiographical as I actually started writing um, and became this thing you see here today. I want to do a time check with my organizers because I want to suck up all the air and not get to your questions. How are we doing? I'm okay? All right, let me do, um, I'll, you know what, I'll, I'll do a viewer choice thing. Uh, it's like American Idol, but just don't text. You can just come right here, you can talk to me. Here are your choices. You can, I can do one more reading selection, or we can go straight to Q&A right now. It's, it's actually your time. So for those who want me to uh, talk at them more, round of applause. Okay. Ego stroke, ego stroke, nice. For those who want to get to the questions, applause now. Five, four, five races, that's awesome. All right. So stupid. Uh, let me go to, uh, which for me is like the creative jugular of this book. It's just, it's the most absurd thing I've written in my life. It's the How to Be the Black Employee. And uh, the chapter kind of wrote itself. <laughs> Wasn't really trying to be funny. <laughs> just wrote down everything that happened to me. The premise of this chapter is kind of a simulation. You are the black employee, you've been hired at a white collar research firm called Optimus Research Group, a company I think I made up, I hope I did for legal purposes, because I have impugned the hell out of their hypothetical honor. Uh, and there are certain rules of the road that I'm offering to you as the black employee. Sort of for black people, it works as a, yeah, I've been there, I've experienced that sort of thing. For non-black people, it's like, oh my God, I was that person. I owe reparations to all my former coworkers. So the, the first part of it, this is a two-part split, and I'll try to keep it short-ish, because I do want to know where y'all are coming from. Let's just do it. Like vampires and extremely rich people, black folk can sense one another. Use your spidey sense. Blackie sense? No. Never say blackie sense again. <laughs> Use your black dar to inspect the workplace for signs of other Negroes. 
They may be working security for the building. They may be in administrative support. They may be among the associate pool. They may be in upper management. Black folk can be anywhere. After all, you're here. One of the biggest mistakes you can make as the black employee is to assume you are the only one. You were hired as a research associate, remember? So do some research. If you find that there is another black employee, do not panic. Employ the CARS system. Collect information. Analyze the data. Review your options. Then set your strategy. Like dogs sniffing each other's butts, you will need to figure out what your relationship to this other black person will be. How black do you expect him or her to be and vice versa? Is this the type of person who feels threatened by your presence? Does this person even acknowledge that he or she is black? You must find answers to all these questions. Your career may depend on it. For example, if you sit in the middle of the corporate ladder and the other black person is a blue-collar employee, the last thing you want to do is alienate this person. He or she probably knows lots of office secrets, has read discarded memos, and can either make your life easier or make sure your office always smells like rotten fish. On the other hand, if the other Negro is above you and older, she may see you as a small version of herself and offer mentorship, advanced warning on promotions, or just good information about what to avoid in the cafeteria. These and all other black-on-black intra-office interactions can be plotted on the inter-Negro spectrum of hostility. Footnote, the INSH is a proprietary scale developed by scholars at the Blackness Advanced Research Projects Agency, also known as BARPA. Whether you gain or lose in these relationships depends heavily on where the other black employee falls on the INSH. On the one end, you have the chill one. This other black employee takes everything in stride. She acknowledges you in subtle ways, occasionally offers advice, and is overall an easygoing presence in the workplace. At a company meeting, when there's a mildly embarrassing racial moment, the two of you suddenly smile at each other, connect eyes briefly, knowingly, and then return to business. Sometimes the chill one will display light hints of subversion, but it's nothing over the top. For example, when the two of you are alone in the coffee room, she might say to you, hey, we should just take all these white people's shit and burn it. But then she laughs, and you laugh, and another coworker enters the room asking, what's so funny? And without missing a beat, you both say, Tina Fey. <laughs> this chapter goes on to describe the diversity committee uh, and your role on it. You are it. <laughs> Office socializing, daytime activities, after hours socializing, the company holiday party your date for that party, the food at that party. Often these events are catered, and if you're in the job long enough, you will face a food choice dreaded by black people since breaking the corporate America color line, whether or not to eat the watermelon. Again, don't panic. I know what it's like 
You are not alone. Many more like you have survived this trauma. Have faith in yourself. More importantly, have faith in your people. Now take a closer look. Is it the only fruit? Is it arranged on its own plate, adjacent to other segregated fruits? Is it mixed in with a fruit salad? Again, take a brief moment. Smile at the person across from you in the buffet line. We're going to get through this together. Most importantly in this situation, don't draw attention to yourself. Don't deliberate too long. It is worse to make no choice than to linger too long on what choice to make. If people notice you thinking about it, they'll put two and two together. They'll assume you're stuck because you can't decide if you should just devour all available watermelon right there from the line. So yes, remain calm, but also just do something. If watermelon is the only fruit you're in the clear and the gods are with you, no one can read into your choice if you never really had a choice, right? Enjoy it. Congratulations. Watermelon's delicious. If there are segregated plates of fruit, I suggest a four-to-one ratio of non-watermelon to watermelon. Look, they, uh, they know you want it. You know you want it. So if you conspicuously avoid it, that's an admission right there, guilt by omission. In the case of a mixed fruit bowl, you will have to be comfortable with the unknown. In this case, leave it to fate. If you dip that oversized spoon into the bowl and it comes back full of nothing but watermelon, so be it. Start singing the theme song to good times and just roll with the absurdity of the moment. In this unlikely event, I recommend you joke about it with other employees because if you don't, they'll assume you have some magical powers of watermelon magnetism. And that's not an idea we need out in the world. Not, not yet. That's it. <laughs> we have, oh my goodness, Victoria Viviana. Vivian? Yes. Vivian is going to be helping us uh, moderate. Questions, you can ask anything about anything. You want to ask about the book, you want to ask about my biography, you want to ask about the Onion comedy, the internet. Do uh, you want people to line up here? Is that your intention? Uh, yes, we can. Okay, so if you could build a little queue over here, then things will go. Okay, great. So you ask a question in like 30 seconds or so, and I'll take about 19 and a half minutes to answer it. It'd be great. Okay. Um, so I grew up in Montgomery County. I went to Sandy Spring Friends School for a year, and my dad worked there. And so I didn't actually go to Sidwell, mm -hmm. but I'm a Quaker. Okay. And I'm interested on what you think Quakers sort of, Quakers like to pretend that they're really good on race because we helped with abolition of slavery right. and we helped civil rights. Which, you know. count, well, by the way, that counts for something. It does. And okay, I'm not I don't know what you useless. So we helped in but, slavery, free people. But it's like, you know, okay, we let our slaves loose 100 years earlier. We still had slaves. Like, we can't be, you know, we're not clean. You had slaves? You're speaking Quaker? collectively no, now. No, okay. no, I don't, I don't I just, well. I'm like, what's going on in Baltimore, y'all? What's going on? All I'm saying is, I'm do like, you I have, have questions opinion? for you now. Do you, <laughs> do you have an opinion on being at Sidwell on Quakers and race relations? Yeah, definitely. I have an opinion on everything, even if I don't know it. Uh, <laughs> or if I'm poorly informed. I'm an American. I have a right to think things. 
and then express those thoughts as if they're based on something. This is based on something. So I have great respect for that Society of Friends history and the abolition of the community service and the idea that there's that of God in everyone. You don't need a preacher to mediate your relationship to the divine. That's a beautiful thing. And the pacifism and the anti-war activities and all that. And my mother had a great respect for that. We were not formally Quakers, but that being a part of Sidwell's fabric was important to her. The, my, my experience as Sidwell was colored in some ways less by the Quakerism than by the elitism and the liberalism and the special flavor of a certain type of white person who's like, I voted for Clinton, therefore I'm the best at everything and I can't be racist. Like It's just made null and void by the fact that I voted for the first black president uh, or I sent my kids to this school. So there's a certain type of left-leaning uh, and wealthier-ish you know, parent, especially a white person that has a perverse racist form in a school like Sidwell. Where I give the school credit, and here's where I think the Quakers and the school combined to turn a negative into a positive. We had a lot of BS happen on that campus, you know, as the country, right? It's a microcosm. So black kids are overly disciplined relative to the infractions caused by non-black students. The curriculum, the number of teachers that look like you, uh, the comments that people make, like someone's gonna write nigger on a, a locker every six years. It has to happen, right? It's just, it's part of the art of being in that environment. You go through these trials and you weather it and you protest and you sit in and you wear black ribbons and you do, you know, the thing you're supposed to do. We had a situation at the school where we were a little bit more fed up than average. We collected all this information. We put out a report about it. We took it to the school. We called it the Students of Color Report. Itemized offenses and slings and arrows. And we said, we're going to do about it. Do something. We demand it. We learn from our parents to that much. And they actually supported us in doing something. And so what we did, they gave us an assembly, 45 minutes of pristine and valuable time, and we put on a play. We put on a play very much based in the reality of what it was like to be black at Sidwell. And we dramatized these scenes and these offensive situations and this challenge and beyond that, they gave us the rest of the morning to run workshops. And we brought in conflict resolution mediators. We were trained and took notes and had questions to prompt people. And we broke the school up into little discussion groups. The whole high school sacrificed a day of official learning so that we could have a voice and stop the process and say something's wrong. And they didn't just bring in some expert speaker to fix it and they didn't add one book to the library to fix it. They empowered students to help with the teaching and learning process. And there was something very Quaker about that, some distribution of power, which at a high school level is insane to some degree because kids are crazy, hopped up on hormones and sex, and maybe they're just waiting for the acne to pass. So I, as much as I had some social and racial trauma in that environment, I will always carry a deep level of respect for the great risk I think that school took in giving us the mic. And then we dropped it and left the room in a smoke pellet. <laughs> yes, sir. Hey, how you doing? Good. Um, Vapor wants a little watermelon joke. That's a, that was a true theme for me as well. Oh, uh, yeah. cool. <laughs> um, it's not a joke. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's based yeah, on scientific yeah. research. If, if Four to one true. ratio, brother. Four to one. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's funny now, but it's a, it's a true story. It's yeah. sad as within <laughs> itself. But anyway, um, um, I noticed that you, when you were referring to employment, 
And yes. you were talking about how you met the other black people who were in the um, who were at your workplace. Right. I noticed that each the example that you gave of each um, black um, em employee you were working with, it was always she. That's not true. I thought you said she. I bounce back and forth. I actually, okay. so go, I'll let you finish. But, 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 but the thing yeah, is, yeah. do you always find yourself being the only black male in these situations? That, that's an, that is an interesting question. So I made, mm. my gender choices in the book are semi-random. Okay. I, I will, in the same paragraph, refer to he or she or he slash, I rarely do the he or she because I think that's a little redundant, but I'll just make an assumption. Like So the mentor example, she was older and could teach you and guide you and these other things. There's another part of that chapter. It's like, there's a dance situation, which is just so, re oh, I would just buy, buy the book for that, steal it. I don't care, rip the pages out. It's the best thing that I've ever written. Not the best thing ever, but the best thing I've ever written because it's, it's so painfully true. So my choices were to really consciously try to bounce back and forth, not just to have a default he. In terms of my actual life experience, it's been a mix and because I know what the stats are in terms of you know professional achievement. Yeah, it's always been she. And I think it depends so much on industry. Like the industry I was referring to and coming from was this corporate strategy consulting field, which is heavily male dominated to begin with. Uh, but then I would interact with executives at our clients and to the extent that there were black people there, they were more, much more often she's. Much more. I actually ran into one last week. Her name was Jerry DeVard. She was at Verizon. Now she's at Nokia. And I was like, I know you. She's like, I don't remember you. But I was like, I, okay, I looked up to you because uh, you were there at the head of the table. It was just so cool to see that as like a 23-year-old. So your point is taken. My experience is more male-leaning in the direct company I work for, but I could see the reflection of achievement, academic, corporate, et cetera, leaning female as we get older because so many of us are completely off the market, locked up, et cetera. Yeah, thank you. How you doing? I'm excellent, man. How are you doing? Great, really good. I got two questions. Oh boy. One is um, your path from you know Harvard to this comedy thing, and, right. and how people respond to that, particularly your family, because okay. going to Harvard as a black man, I'm sure is a big deal. And so then, no, not everybody does it. We yeah, about? right. It's expected. It's a rite of passage, man. <laughs> right. And then the second You're one beat is by the about, cops go to Harvard. It's just normal. You know? The second one is about. Um, uh, public humor with black people, like with this thing with uh, Mary J. Blige and that commercial. Um, Singing for chicken! <laughs> Never I, been done before, so innovative. Our, our ability to laugh at ourselves and, and not, you know, in, in, in public. Yeah. Um, so the Harvard to comedy transition, my, that was, with my family, there was no issue. And my family was, was, was and is very tiny. My mother, my sister, me, and whatever animals we had at the time. Now it's my sister and me and whatever animals we have at the time. My mom was super supportive of me pursuing something of value and worth and uniqueness that kind of channeled my gifts. And she, as from a young age, auditioned for stuff, dance, sing, do math, engineer, computers. She was for it as long as I was like deeply into it. And so I played in youth orchestra, I took computers apart, I did the Boy Scouts, I rode bikes all the time, we camping, you know, whatever it was, she just like kept me busy mostly, I think, because of the distractions, the, the deadly distractions outside of our front door were quite serious. Uh, so the, there was no difficulty or like disappointment, like when you went to Harvard, now you're telling jokes to drunk people? What's up with that? 
Uh, in fact, I would say you know, my, my own humor, like we had a very deep respect for it growing up. A lot of road trips, a lot of listening to audio cassettes, Whoopi Goldberg, a lot of uh, Red Fox records, a lot of Garrison Keillor tapes, a lot of uh, old-timey radio dramas like Lum and Abner and, and a lot of British drama on TV, com comedies on TV. So we had a respect for comedy. I started distributing comedy in high school as a stress reaction. I started writing it in college. So my own comedic voice was really forged at Harvard around the news, around news satire. Did a, I had a publication called News Flash, which was like a, a bootleg version of The Onion, basically. I didn't know The Onion existed at the time, so a black man invented that. Uh, <laughs> and then once I was out, that the one thing, I'm, I'm lingering on this because you just reminded me of a lot of stuff I haven't actually talked about much. My mother's particular concern wasn't that I'd be somehow squandering this deep investment by performing, but it was more like do the performance for the right reason and be careful of doing it just for the crowd gratification because you start trying to please people, you lose yourself, you lose your purpose, the compass, and you can get lost. I mean, by definition, you lose yourself, you're lost. So with her, it was always like, why are you doing it? Make sure you're saying something that's actually worth saying. You kind of use your powers for good sort of thing. You had a second question that was about, can someone remind me quickly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I don't, it was funny. I didn't, I mean, the, the Mary J. Blige and the chicken and the singing, uh, you know, it was hilarious, I guess. It, I don't have any, I'm splitting your question because I'm, I'm mildly confused, not heavily, but mildly about that situation, this connection of black people laughing at themselves in public. I think she just made a terrible commercial. <laughs> and and the, the racial offense was mild compared to the quality offense. I was like, this is terrible. What's, you have a tax situation? What's going on? Like, why are you doing this to yourself? Um, love yourself, you know, love yourself. But it wasn't about the chicken thing. Uh, that was sort of icing on a terrible cake uh, of terror. So I don't, I don't mind black people laughing at each other, you know, in public. I think as long as the range of laughter is ex is exposed and uh, exists, as long as there is a range, because where I do have something to say, a little frustration is like whenever you start pigeonholing. But the whole book is like I joke: if you've ever been called too black or not black enough, if you've ever worked with a black person or heard of black people, this book is for you. And through that, that captures everything. So when blackness in any art gets reduced to like, oh, it's this, that's black, and everything else is, that's weird. It's like, no, black is punk, too. Black is rock. Black is blues. Black is funky. Uh, and same with the comedic side of things. Uh, and same with the food side of things. So I've rambled a bit longer, your answer. I'm sorry to you. Let's go to the next one. Baratande. Hey, sir. Um, I got two questions, too. But before I do that, I just wanted to let you know, some of my best friends are watermelon eaters, too. So. <laughs> I thought you were going to say some of your best friends are watermelons. That'd be way more interesting. Like, what is going on in your head where you got to have friends with fruits? Two questions. The first question is, how much influence did your mother's and your father's, I'm assuming, Pan-African thought and behavior have on your life experience? Right. And number two, as a former student of Sitwell School, were you asked to recruit for the school after you graduated? If so, yes. If not, why not? Ooh. Um, that's, you guys are good. Baltimore's representing with the new questions. <laughs> oh, somebody's recording this. This is historic now. And now it's historic. Never been done before. First question on uh, the Afrocentrism 
Afrocentrism. I'm smart, whatever. Uh, yes, strong influence. So obviously the name is where it began. I mean, my mom, you know, here's the, a very rapid family sketch going back four, four generations. Bless you. Great-grandfather, born a slave in Carolyn County, Virginia, teaches himself to read, moves to D.C., 1896. Works for the city, highway department, building roads and stuff like that. Lives to almost 100 years old. Has two daughters, one of whom is Lorraine Martin, my maternal grandmother, first black employee at the U.S. Supreme Court. Didn't know that until after my mom died in 2005. That was because she and her had a terrible non-relationship by the time I came along. My mother, rebel with a cause, forged in the fires of the 60s, on the street, protesting to some degree against her own mother's conservatism, proud of blackness, not ashamed of it. Let's do this. Let's take over radio stations and march outside of Malcolm X Park. Let's go the whole nine yards. And me, as a product of all that effort, gets to you know tell dick jokes. It's great. It's, a, it's, a, it's what our ancestors fought for. And I think with the you know, Afrocentric thing, that was you know part of my mom's identity was to reclaim like her generation, not the whole one, but a big chunk of it was you know the, like the shame, the level of deep shame associated with black was so psychologically embedded and destructive. And she was part of that group of people turning it around and the black power movement and the African with a K movement. And so my name was a product of that choice. The house we grew up in and all the art and the lessons learned, like she made me memorize the countries of Africa when I was eight years old and would like grill me on it like a drill sergeant. Um, to Africa is a continent, not a country. Here are the countries that make it up. Uh, and so, and I would take that and be a little militant on the street with that knowledge. And then the, the genius thing she did, and I don't use the word genius overly, I think it's overused, brilliant and genius are too easily handed out. But in this case, it was genius. I went to Sidwell, seventh grade. It's a formative period. You got 12 years old, puberty, peer pressure, girls, masculine stuff and expectations and assertiveness and violence and she sent me into this environment with different values, and she knew it. This is a school, you know, people have money, they live in different neighborhoods, not necessarily bad, sometimes horrible, but everybody can be horrible, but vastly different. So she buttressed that choice with the choice to enroll me in an Afrocentric rites of passage program called Ankobia, uh, that was based out of the Nation House Watoto School off Park Road in Northwest DC. In fact, Baltimore's own Ta-Nehisi Coates is in my class from Ankobia. I, me and Ta-Nehisi, every Saturday for a year, got grilled on black history, reading Marcus Garvey, doing thousands of jumping jacks, learning electrical skills and firearms training and weird practical skills for what it means to be black in America in like 89 to 94. So that happened at the same time as I was at Sidwell. And the beauty of it was, I kind of was able to see everybody's extremist bullshit, right? And so like the pure Afrocentric vision is overly romantic. It is like, we're only kings and queens, the white man is the devil, and like that's the extreme view. I'm not saying all Afrocentrism is that, but you don't serve yourself by overly embracing, but I understand the reaction because when you're so told you're nothing, equal and opposite reactions, almost physics. And similarly with the Sidwell type environment, you expose the kids with cars and money and cocaine, and like that's not normal or right or good either. So the two exposures, plus what was happening outside the front window, that's the foundation. So it had a deep impact early on. I think it matured me, it made me like, I ran a black student's union at Sidwell. I was like a little angry, serious, I was not a funny child. 
I took myself very, very seriously. And I, was the, I got mad at the whole city of DC for the Redskins. I was like, how are you, black people! How would you react to the Washington Coons or the Washington Niggers or the Washington, you know, step and fetch it? Like you would be burning things. So why are we gonna do this to our brown brother? Yeah, et cetera. Uh, hello, uh, my name hello. is Emmanuel. And uh, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for doing this and yeah. um, being a voice of the black community. Um, also, I would like to thank you for um, the uh, Childish Gambino you had planned doing your montage. <laughs> I like that, that was cool. Thank you. And uh, my two questions I wanted to ask were. Um, Everybody's got two. Yeah. And I never got to your second one. I remember it though. All right. First off, um, that was your first book, right? Not exactly. exactly. It's the first book that someone else paid for. Okay. <laughs> it's an important okay. marker. All right. I self-published a book that I wrote in 2003, released in 2004. It was a collection of things I'd already written. Okay. It's called Better Than Crying: Poking Fun at Politics, the Press, and Pop Culture. And it was things mostly I wrote from 2001 right after 9-11 through 2003, plus a few greatest hits from college from that Newsflash newsletter. Okay. Uh, and then I did some e-books that I would distribute for like rewards for joining my email list. But this is the first book that A, someone else paid for, and B, is really an intentional, original book, not a, not a compendium of stuff. Okay, yeah. my bad. My second one mm -hmm. was, uh, what suggestions would you have, well name a, a real good suggestion that you would have for an uh, up and coming writer or somebody trying to get into the field of book writing? And that'll be all. Bye. What was your name? Emmanuel. Right. Is <laughs> not sexy advice. Uh, my my everybody's path is a little different, but the beauty of what we're happening, what's happening in the world now, is the most centralized authorities are losing that authority. In part due to just historic wins, and heavy part due to technology. You can't manage that anymore, whether it's TV, networks, music, labels, publishing, houses. You have an ability to express yourself, to test yourself, to find your voice and the audience along with that process so that at a minimum, you're achieving part of the artistic goal. Like, why do you want to write a book? Do you want to write a book? Do you just want to write and get your idea out there? If you want to write and get your idea out there, the book is not a necessary wrapper. It's an expense and it has a... Uh, sort of historical nostalgia and a beauty to it, but it's not the only way to be heard. If you want money, don't do it. There's other ways to make money. <laughs> so you have to have something much deeper than and publishing. is not a lucrative field for the vast majority. Uh, and if you still seek the deal and the validation and all, having established your voice and your audience already, you make it an easier choice for a publisher to approach you or when you approach them for them to listen. So in my case, what I told, that was an abbreviated version, but I didn't go knocking on a bunch of doors with a manuscript and say, please, please, Mr. Publisher, would you give me the right to share my thoughts with people? They saw some value in what I was saying and what I had already established and certainly helped accelerate it with their distribution and their marketing and things like that. So my advice, given that the cost of expressing yourself is zero and the cost of reaching people is relatively zero, Find that platform that works for you. Maybe it's a blog, maybe it's an online magazine, maybe standing on the street yelling at people. You know, whatever works for you. But cultivate that and just keep it up. It's, it's a journey. Yeah, thank you, it's a good question. So, my name is Gary and I'm a fellow Friends graduate. I graduated from the uh, St uh, Stony Run Friends okay. High School. 
Woo, woo, go Quakers. <laughs> is that, do we do that? Is that what we say? Woo, woo, go Quakers? I've never heard know. that in my life. Whatever. Anyway. So an imposter. <laughs> well, I was only there four years, so I kind of was an imposter. Right. <laughs> so my question is, so a few friends of mine, um, black male friends of mine, we went to um, predominantly white institutions right. for undergrad. And so we, we have this kind of, a uh, few of us have this discussion about, you know, should you have had a black roommate or not had a black oh. roommate? Does huh. that improve or you know lower your social clout? And so I figure I would ask an expert, you know, their opinion, <laughs> so we can end this discussion once and for all. <laughs> if you carry sufficient levels of blackness within you, then the color of your roommate is irrelevant, because uh, you will bring that to the to the common room. I had a super black roommate. <laughs> I really did. I uh, it actually I wrote it. There's a whole chapter called Being Black at Harvard. It could be a whole book. I didn't take good enough notes to, to fully write the book. I don't remember a lot of college. But uh, no, that, that, I'm not implying I had fun. <laughs> that is not the reason. I didn't sleep. And so I blew a lot of brain cells by not taking care of myself. Uh, my roommate, I showed up the first day. I see this Angolan flag on his trunk. Uh, I see like, I'm gonna make something like a black power fist, but that was, it was, the Angolan flag was definitely there. His name was Daniel Yohanatan Giles. He was from Brooklyn. <laughs> I was like, this is a black as Negro. We are gonna be like Revolution Central. You got Baratunde Rafik Thurston and Daniel Yohanatan Giles, both broke with mad red, black, and green themes. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's, so I never, and actually my whole time in college, I always had a roommate, a brown or black roommate. Our blocking group, we were among the poorest kids in our year. There were six of us. Zach from Oakland, Sharif from Philly, uh, Alex from Michigan, uh, Danielle. And, uh, and we roamed together for the rest of our time at the school. But we were also, it was kind of weird when I think about it, we were very outgoing and kind of cross-racial in our friendships. And that, to me, was important. Like, the roommate or not, you don't even necessarily control it. But there were, it was fascinating to me, because I had been so, like I had been uh, trained to interact with white people. It's a, it's a process. If you come out of like a black and Latino neighborhood and you just thrust into a place like Harvard, that's mentally destabilizing. <laughs> and there's, 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 there should be a guidebook, there should be a program, there should be a boot camp. My boot camp was Sidwell Friends. I had six years to get it right and to fail and to get it right again and to fail. By the time I got to Harvard, so much of that was, was second nature. What I saw with some of my classmates, they just came straight out of blackness and were like, ah! Not ready. Not socially ready, sometimes not academically ready, but especially the social. I remember meeting one of my classmates, she just hated white people. I was like, you go to Harvard University, you live in America, you can't afford to hate white people. That is a bad business decision, you know? Just like, just think logically, if not with your heart, with your mind. Uh, and so, but it was also it was kind of painful to, to see some of the self-seclusion that happened as a result of that shock. So my advocacy point is, you know, whether your roommate's black or not, be open to stuff. You're not, if you go to a predominantly white institution, you don't go there to huddle with black people alone. I'm not saying don't huddle, but leave the huddle and go play the game. Right? It's not in the huddle. <laughs> Next. Okay, last question. Okay, um, my name is Phineas from South Africa. I'm Hello, Phineas. Visiting Baltimore. I'm going to South Africa in uh, August. 
sweet. Uh, Sounds good. He's like, I'm not. That means nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you? I'm not a travel agent. I don't run the country. Why would you share your personal travel itinerary with me? I do not represent the, the nation. <laughs> I get it, bro. I made it. I made it. Sick. Do you know James from South Africa? He's, no, he, he, a lot of people know him. He's kind of a no, big I, deal. I don't think he I lives do. in like Johannesburg. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I knew this was coming. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway uh, I'm basically trying to write a book called uh, Breaking Barriers and Building Bridges. Oh, cool. And it's kind of like based on relationships and it's kind of like based on this guy who once like dated a white girl, like an African girl. Dun, dun, dun. I know, I know. And you can imagine the history, you know, of South African apartheid and everything. Yeah. And it's kind of like that journey of dating somebody different from your race, especially from my white community. So my question is to you, it's kind of weird, but I hope you'll answer it, okay. is how do you become black and remain black? How do you become black? How do you become black uh -huh. and remain black uh -huh. if you're dating somebody who's not from your race? How do you... Become black or remain black when you're and dating somebody who's out of your race. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Phineas. So, <clears throat> I'll, I'll do a couple things with your question. In part, I will dismiss it. In, but let me, I'm not meaning this to be disrespectful. The remaining black is, uh, requires no effort. You can't become unblack. You can become disconnected. You can become desensitized or non-empathetic. You can become less knowledgeable about certain things and more about others, but I don't think you become less black. And that notion, I think, is a troubling one of the language of like de-blackening. I actually just made up that word. Uh, but let's not popularize, let's not maintain that. But underneath your question, this is why I don't want to fully dismiss it. Partly what happens, <laughs> you get extra black <laughs> if you're in an interracial relationship. Because you're constantly explaining shit. <laughs> constantly. I was in an interracial relationship for nine years. I was married. I'm, I'm no longer, but it was, a, it was a great run. Like, I'm not crapping on that relationship, but just to give you, that's a long time. And in that, you know, you obviously learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about the other person. You learn a lot about gender differences when you spend that much time with someone of the opposite sex and living and committing and things. And the exp one of the things that was, impressive to me, not necessarily in a positive sense of the word impressive, but just leaving an impression upon. It's like, man, we were raised differently. We have different sets of inputs and assumptions about how the world works. You were raised to believe in this country. I was raised to distrust it. Just as a default position, that leads to some interesting interactions. Because there's just like, Fourth of July, and oh, didn't you do this? Did you watch this? It's like, no, I was in the streets yelling loudly about things. <laughs> and, and when you're, and, and, and the different race, you know, it depends on what that race is too. If it's white, then there's a certain level of privilege and ignorance about race that goes along with being white in this country. Because white people generally don't have to think about whiteness in the way that black people have to think about blackness because the thoughts are forced upon them by some authority. Uh, Latino and, and Desi and all kinds of other brownish and yellowish, that's, that's different. And you have an immigrant thing going on too, which, spices things up. You know, even if they're black American and a Caribbean American, like that could be interesting because of the assumptions that the immigrants bring 
about work ethic and value and religion versus more native-born black experiences. Uh, so I think, you know, in, in some ways, the contrast of the relationship forces a reblackening, <laughs> and certainly forces you to make explicit things that you maybe had as implicit assumptions. I found myself giving history lessons with, with love and compassion, because I had chosen this person, so I can't get mad. It's like, why are you asking all this stuff? Because you love me? Oh, right, I love you. Gah. You know, like that's just, I don't want to be an asshole, right? And I want that same patience the other way around. So I found it very illuminating, occasionally exhausting. But, you know, if the relationship is, is a healthy one, it actually forced me to think about my own origins and my own point of view, which I just assume. You don't necessarily think about your point of view as you have it. That's a weird way to live, just thinking about how you think. You just do stuff. You, maybe you think, but you don't think about thinking. That's a very academic way to exist in the world. An interracial relationship can force you to do because the person closest to you doesn't necessarily share that point of view in many important ways to your identity. And you have to decide, like, am I patient and compassionate? Am I irritated? Is this a, a breaking point? Or are there other issues and I'm going to blame it on this? Uh, but that's getting weird. Your question about recruiting, I, I will address it quickly. I was not involved in recruiting people to Sidwell. I, uh, I left there under a kind of a cloud, not a personal cloud of like shame or anything, but I was just angry. I was very, very, very angry when I left that school. And it took years to get to let that go and to realize the value that I got and how the trials and tribulations served me well. And the academic prep was far beyond a lot of what my classmates came to Harvard with. And I was like, oh, writing is easy for me here? And I was a B writer at Sidwell? They must have done something right. Because I'm, I'm the same writer, but the standard's different. Wow, good for them. So I have not been involved explicitly in recruiting, but I have gone every year back to perform in their alumni fundraiser. They do a fundraiser, financial aid fundraiser every year, and dancers and musicians, and I do a comedy routine. And that, because I was only able to go there due to financial aid, due to grants, due to my mom, second mortgaging the home and all these sacrifices. And if you have the right support, that kind of institution can be positively life-altering. Uh, and so I wanted to give back in what way I could, because I didn't get there alone, and certainly didn't remain there alone. Yeah. Okay, let's give this to Do that! That's what she meant to say. Let's give me a round of applause. Oh man, Baltimore! <laughs>